we know that this Bible reading will be conducted by our brother David Gilliland, no stranger to us here. We make him again very welcome, and we trust that the Lord will strengthen him to open the passage to us. And of course the passage is John chapter 1, first 18 verses of John chapter 1. Now shall we read the passage before us. John's Gospel chapter 1, and commencing at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them give he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word was made flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him, and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And of his fullness have all we received on grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. <clears throat> now that's the reading we trust. <clears throat> the Lord's blessing upon a very familiar scripture. Some of us, I suppose it was one of the the first passages that we committed to memory as children, so simple, so precious, and yet so profound. <clears throat> now, we know that all Bible doctrine is important, every detail and every department of it, but the doctrine that we consider these Bible readings, it's very central. Not all doctrine would be central, but this is central and unique to Christianity. There is no other belief system in the world that believes that the central figure was divine. Muhammad never thought of saying he was divine. It would have been repulsive, preposterous. Neither did Confucius. Neither did the Buddha. None of them ever claimed to be divine. But what makes Christianity unique amongst the belief systems of the world and exclusive is this, that the one in whom we have put our trust, he claimed to be God. We have acknowledged him to be God and we believe him to be of the full deity possessed and eternally divine. And he's the only way to God. And because of that, this doctrine that we consider is very important and is very, very key and distinctive. Now, I've been asked to more or less give two openings, two brief openings. First of all, a brief opening to the topic itself, the general theme. And then a brief opening to the text of these very familiar 18 verses. So I'll try and do both of those things as briefly as I can. It'll take just a little extra than we usually dedicate to the opening. Now, there will be four matters in each department that we'll consider. 
First of all, in connection with the theme that is before us, I want to speak about the different aspects of it. As you can see, there have been four chapters selected, and as we've been reminded, they have in common that they are chapter 1s. But of course, there is much more to it than that, because these four chapters are presenting to us the deity of the Lord Jesus from a distinct angle and from a distinct aspect. You see, when we're reading here in the Gospel according to John, we're thinking about one who can be trusted. If I have a soul that needs to be saved, to whom can I confidently trust it? And the purpose of the Gospel is that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that believing you might have life through his name. And in this very gospel, the Lord Jesus, he commanded faith. He said, ye believe in God. Believe also in me. The very faith that you have exercised Godward, he says, exercise that same faith, Christward. So that's the main subject in John. In, in Colossians chapter 1, the question is, is Christ enough? For full Christianity, or do we need some additions? Do we need some supplements? And the writer will tell us, as we will be reminded a little later in the day, that no, we don't need any supplements because in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. If he is divine, everything we need is supplied in his divine fullness. When we go, of course, to Hebrews chapter 1, God has been speaking down the ages. And we wonder, is the message yet complete? Have we reached the point of the last word? Has the climax and the capstone yet been placed upon the communications of God? And it has, because a divine person has appeared. God has spoken in his Son. When we get to the book of Revelation, it's another side of things altogether. There's a great future. Who will be able to bring the ages to their consummation? Who will be responsible for the wrapping up of history? It will only be a divine person that will be able to bring history to its conclusion. And so, we're introduced at the beginning of the book of Revelation to a Savior who is divine. Now, just let me go over that again. The Savior must be divine. In John 1, because of the faith which he demands. In Colossians 1, because of the fullness which he brings. In Hebrews 1, because of the finality which he declares. And he must be divine in Revelation chapter 1 because of the future, the glorious future which he secures. And he could do none of those four were they anything less than God manifest in flesh. The second matter that I speak about in general, not just the aspects of the topic, I want to say a little word very quickly upon the assault which has been made upon this topic. It's a, it's a very interesting, a little coincidence, not too important, that in this very week, 1690 years ago, on the 20th of May, in the year 325 AD, there was a great assembly, a conference of theologians and Bible teachers that took place in a little town called Nicaea. It's in Turkey. It's called Iznik. It's still in existence to the present day. That conference had been arranged by the Emperor Constantine and there were quite a number of issues to be discussed at the conference but the main subject was the deity of Christ. Because there had been a man called Arius and he had been around Alexander and he began to teach that there was a time when Christ did not exist. 
He went back a long way, but you could always reach a point where Christ did not exist. He wasn't merely a prophet. He wasn't an angel. He was greater than angels. But there was a time when he didn't exist. He was God's son. And just as a father is a father, then the father gets married. Maybe the father is 30 and he has a son. So there's a father, but he hasn't a son until he's 30. Well, there was the father who was eternal. And then at a point, a particular, a long, long time ago, far back, away before creation, but he was created and there was a time when he was not. That was a man called Arius. And of course that caused quite a stir. Because many of those early theologians thought that such a teaching did not square with Holy Scripture. And they convened this great big conference in order to settle the matter. They toed and froed from about the 20th of May to the 14th of June in the year 325 AD. And they drew up a document. And in this document, based upon Scripture, they tried to get a frame of words that would reflect Bible teaching. Now, this gentleman, Arius, he introduced a word into the document and he wanted everybody to sign it. And the word was this, that Christ was hum oi usios. Hum oi usios with the Father. Now that word hum oi usios means of a similar substance to God the Father. Not exactly the same, but similar. Hum oi usios. There was a little fellow called... Uh, called Athanasius, an energetic little man, he wouldn't have it. He said, it'll not do. He said, I'll not sign the document. If you put in this document that Christ is hum oi, he said, you'll have to put in the document that Christ is hum o, not hum oi, hum o. Well, you say, what difference? Sure, it's only a single letter. The first word is an I in it. The second word has no I in the middle. You're making a whole big fuss over a letter. Forget about it and let it go. It's only a form of words. Well, no matter how they tried to plead and persuade, good, good old Athanasius, he wouldn't give in. He said, no, it'll not do. He said, as I read the New Testament, I discover that the Lord Jesus is not of a similar substance to the Father. He said, I discover he's of the same substance. The same substance. Eternally, Equally, essentially divine. God ever blessed, we bow the knee, said Wesley, and own all fullness dwells in thee. And the battle waged, but eventually Athanasius, he won the day and stuck to the word of God. And there we have the Nicene Creed that people talk about, which speaks about the Lord Jesus of having full day. It's not that he's part deity. It's not that he has divine attributes, or some of them. It's not that he has divinity. No, dear Christians. It's not that he's some kind of a, a mighty prophet, or an angelic apparition. No, the Lord Jesus, the one whom we have trusted, is nothing less than God manifest in flesh of the same substance. So, the battle has waged, raged on. Some of those Arians, Arius was a very clever man. He was a charismatic character. He gathered up a great number of followers. His doctrine spread across the world. And that's the doctrine that lands on your doorstep. Called nowadays Jehovah Witnesses. They will say that Christ is a son of God. He's not eternally and essentially equal with the Father. So that what Arius taught, the heresy of Arius, unfortunately, the poison is still alive and well and active to this present day. 
But blessed be God, the truth still stands as we have it in Holy Scripture. So here's a little piece of ground we cannot afford to give up if we do the very bulwarks and the fundamentals of the Christian faith, they begin to crumble. Now, the other thing that I want to mention, not just the four aspects of the deity of Christ and the assaults upon the deity of Christ, I want to speak about the famous acronym. Now, for younger believers, and it's great to see so many younger believers here, this will prove helpful to you in your apologetics at university and wherever you may be found. A number of years ago, there was a, a gentleman wrote an article in which he made a little acrostic for the subject of the deity of Christ. Uh, I think maybe it has become book form and so on, but that's only by the way. I read the article and I thought his article was very useful. He takes the word hands, H-A-N-D-S, and he said there are five reasons why, as we read the scriptures, the Lord Jesus must be equal to the Father. Number one, because of the honors that he received. Christ is worshipped. If you worship anyone according to the Bible, even an angel other than God, it's idolatry. But in heaven, and even on earth, but for all eternity, God will be worshipped, and the Lord Jesus will be worshipped. He receives divine honors. And this good old Mr. Darby wrote in his hymn, All the Father's counsels claiming equal honors to the Son. Secondly, he's not only God because of the honors he receives, because of the attributes that he has. God is omniscient, so is the Lord Jesus. God is omnipotent, so is the Lord Jesus. God is omnipresent, so is the Lord Jesus. That's not true of the devil. That's not true of any angel. It's certainly not true of any human being. Those attributes pertain to deity, and they're both true of the Saviour. And both true, uh, also true of the Father who sent. The honors he receives, the attributes that he shares. The names, the names that he bears. You know, in this very passage he's called God. I could tell a passage in the Bible, you could find that, where he's called Lord. So that the Lord Jesus, the Jesus of Nazareth, in the New Testament is nothing less than the Jehovah of eternity in the Old Testament. And the names that he bears are a reflection of his deity. Thirdly, the deeds that he does. The Father has life in himself. The Lord Jesus could bring people from the dead. Even the Pharisees said, who is this man that he can forgive sins? It's only God can do that. But the Lord Jesus did it. So the honors that he wears, the attributes he shares, the names that he bears, the deeds that he does, he does the actions of deity. And finally, the seat that he filled. There was never an angel, we'll discover, asked to sit at God's right hand. That place at God's right hand is a seat reserved for deity. And there's a man there today, our Savior. And because of his present seat at God's right hand, he is proven to be God. Now keep that in mind, younger believers. The honors, the attributes, the names, the deeds, and the seat. And for those five reasons, I take it that the deity of the Lord Jesus, as presented in the New Testament, is absolutely irrefutable. Now the only other thing that I mention in a very, very general way is uh, concerning 
I've just taken a little note of it here. I, uh, the alternatives. Actually, here's another thing that's useful in connection with your apologist. I'm referring to C.S. Lewis. I don't particularly, I'm not a C.S. Lewis reader, and I don't advocate by any manner or means everything he said. But he had an interesting thing in this very connection. He said most people, in fact, nearly everybody would acknowledge, even people that are very hostile to the Word of God, they would acknowledge that Jesus Christ was a good man. In fact, some would say he was the greatest man that ever lived. Not God now, they say. Not God, these free thinkers, modernists. But he was a great ethical teacher, and he was a great instructor, and he was a marvelous example. And they might go as far as to say he was the greatest man that ever lived. Now, C.S. Lewis points, that's the very thing you can't say. That's the thing that you cannot say. Jesus Christ was not a good man. For he said, a good man would never dare to make the claims that Jesus Christ made. If any man who's just a man, and he's a good man, if he stands up and makes the claims of equality that Christ, and calls God his Father, and claims deity for himself, he's not a good man. He's a rascal. He's maybe a demon embodied. You know, C.S. Lewis says, that's the thing you must never say, that Jesus Christ is a good man. He said, if he made the claims, and the claims are not true, there are three, called his trilemma. Number one, he's deranged. He's not right in his thinking. He's a man that has lost reason. And he's making big claims. Lewis said, just as if I claimed to be a boiled egg, he said, everybody would know that there's something seriously wrong with my head. If Jesus Christ was a good man and claimed to be God, everybody would know he has lost reason. So he could be deranged. Nobody believes that. His wisdom was too obvious. He said, secondly, he could be diabolical. Because the devil's always deceiving and the devil's always making claims that are... He said, the third alternative is, if you don't succeed, seed that he's deranged, and if you don't seed that he's diabolical, he said, the only alternative is to acknowledge he's divine. That's what we acknowledge today. Acknowledge his essential deity. We bow at his feet. We trust him as Savior. We acknowledge him as Lord. So keep that in mind. I take that to be more or less, I know that has been qualified, and some have called it in question. I consider that to be a very strong argument. Only three possibilities. If we accept the Bible as giving a faithful record, those are the only three possibilities. Lord, liar, or lunatic. That's the language that Lewis uses. I'm not altogether comfortable with it. But he says you can't have anything else. If he's not lunatic, making those outrageous claims, just a man. If he's not a downright liar, making false claims, the only alternative is to acknowledge, like Thomas, he's my Lord. He's my God. And that's exactly where we stand this afternoon. Now, that's just a general to the topic. I'll have to come in here just to say a word or two very briefly about the first 18 verses. It's, um, they're very well known, so that will help me greatly in just making a few introductory remarks. Now, the first thing that I would say about this introduction to the Gospel, it's aim. What's the aim of these 18 verses? You see, John... John is going to show us in 21 chapters. We're going to get a profile of a Savior. And when people listen to him speaking, they will say, 
Never man spake like this man. You see, we never heard the likes of this before. When they see him working, they will say, we never saw the likes of this before. These things were never done on earth before. Was it ever heard from the foundation of the world that a man that was born blind should receive his sight? He said, this man has words unparalleled and he's doing deeds that are incomparable. John says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised because he said, the one who speaks these words, he is the word. He says, don't be surprised that he can do these things. He said, he's the one that made all things. So he said, I want to introduce you to the person. I would say, this is the four word, if you like, in John's Gospel. I'm using four word in the sense that we have it here. The four logos, the four word. When these good men write a four word to a book, it's to introduce you to the subject of the book, to give you an idea of what is coming. That's exactly what John does. He says, I want to show you just the picture of the great person that will be presented in the next 20 chapters. This is the foreword. He said, nothing will surprise you after this. He said, he's a creator. And he said, you'll meet him and he'll do creatorial things. He said, he's the everlasting word and he will speak marvelous things. He said, you have it all here. The aim is to introduce the Savior and other subjects. We're not giving an outline of the gospel. Now, more important than anything uh, in that regard, what is the arrangement of this foreword? Now, I'm just going to draw on your memory. I'm not going through the verses in detail just at the minute. You notice that in verse 1, the Lord Jesus is designated the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Three times in that first verse. Then that title disappeared. But when you get down to verse 14, that title reappears. The Word. So that the passage is divided into two very, very obvious sections. Verses 1 to 13, and then verse 14 to 18. Now you'll notice, if you're thinking and prepared to think on this warm afternoon, you will notice just a couple of differences. In that first section, we are told, the Word was. In the second section, the Word became. In the first section we are told the Word was God. In verse 14 we are told the Word became flesh. In the first section we are told the Word was with God. In verse 14 we are told the Word was among men. So that the two sections are very different, telling us about the pre-incarnate Savior in verse 1, and then the Savior who became incarnate in verse number 14. Now, another, another very important observation is the direction of these two passages are very, very different. Now, this is a little bit, just a fraction more involved, but I want you to think about it, for it is vitally important. You take the first 13 verses. And I'm working from your memory. We begin in what we will call eternity. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. Then you come down and you read about John the Baptist. So we're moving from eternity. And then we come away down about verse 6 or so to John the Baptist. Then we find about verse number 9. The Lord Jesus comes into the world. He was in the world. And then 
we discover that people receive him, some reject him, some receive him, and they become sons of God. You see, that's a perfect thing. You see, so, this one who was in a special relationship with God before creation, he entered into creation, and through him we can now be brought into a special relationship with God. You see, that's marvellous. So the one who is the Son of God stepped into history so that the children of Adam could now become children of, children of God. So the Savior who himself had a special relationship with God, he stepped into our world and we now have a special relationship with God. So the first 13 verses are telling us that the everlasting Son of God has made it possible for us to become sons of God. And you move from eternity right down past John the Baptist, right down to we are our supernatural, our second, our spiritual birth. That's the direction which the first paragraph takes. From there to here. Look at the second paragraph. Verse 14. It says, The Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Then you read about John the Baptist. Then you read about Moses. Then you read about the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. You say, that's the opposite direction. Exactly. So the first paragraph starts away up there and comes to us. The second one starts with Bethlehem and reaches back into the bosom of the Father. Back into eternity. So that time and eternity, God and men, heaven and earth, are being brought together in a special way in this glorious person. We come from eternity in the first paragraph to our supernatural birth. In the second paragraph, we start with the Savior's supernatural birth. And we never stop until in verse 18, we have finished back up in eternity. So that the two paragraphs, they are moving in two different directions. And in the middle of it all is the fact that we have now become the children of God. Dear Christians, it's a marvel that through the blessed Savior, we have been brought into relationship with God. That's the purpose of this great passage. Now, I think maybe, I think the only other thing that I'll mention in connection with that, the difference in these two passages and the direction that they take, and I've mentioned the design of the passages to show how the Son of God became man so that men might become the children, not the sons, might become the children of God. Now, I think, I think maybe as time I was sitting down, the only other thing that I mentioned, and this is, <laughs> this is what I call, if I give you my rough sheet of notes somewhere, this is what I call a working analysis. This is not a polished analysis. This is not in any way a finished product. It's just a working, rugged, rough, ready analysis. And I'll give you that. That's the one that we're going to follow for the Bible reading. Seven sections in these 18 verses that I want to mention. First of all, we have the Word and the forever. In verse number 1 and 2. The great forever that he enjoyed. John takes us back. And he opens a window into an everlasting world. And he said, there was God, and with God was the everlasting word. The forever that he enjoyed. Then in verses number 2, down to verse number 4, we have the framework he produced. 
John says this one who was there with God, he said there came a point at the beginning and he said everything that we see in the big universe, he produced it all. Life, light, order, intelligent design. He said it's all as a result of him. Not only the forever which he enjoyed with God, but the framework of the universe which he produced by his creative power. Verses 3 to 5. Then from verse 6 to 8, we have the forerunner that he followed. You see, just before the Lord Jesus, this everlasting word came into history, God sent a special forerunner. You would say, but maybe Christ arrived and nobody noticed. Maybe God slipped his son in and never told anybody. He says, what? He says, never told anybody. He said, the greatest preacher that this world has ever seen, he came, there was a man sent from God. And he said, just before his public presentation, the whole land was stirred by the mighty preaching of this rousing messenger. He said, they knew that he was coming. So we have got now the word and the forerunner that he followed. Then in verse number 9, down to verse number 13, we have the word and the families that he encountered. We have the natural family, just ordinary people. He was in the world. The world knew him not. Just the sons of Adam. They never took any notice of him. Then you get the national family. He came onto his own. They knew him, but they didn't receive him. Then you have the new family. So that this one who came, his own family wouldn't have him, but he produced a new family. You say, are there many in that new family? That's a very select group. This spiritual family, related to God in a special way, are there many in it? Well, he says, as many as you like. As many as received him. To them give you power to become the sons of God. And they not only have a right, in verse number 12, to be the sons of God, they have a regeneration, in verse 13, because having received him, they're born again. It's not just a right, it's a reality. They've had a change and they're actually now in the family of God. So, the forever he enjoyed, the framework he produced, the forerunner he followed, the families he encountered, the flesh that he assumed, the word became flesh. You notice, dear Christians, it doesn't say that he became man. It doesn't say that he took a body. It puts it with a sense of reality, the Word became flesh. And we'll think about the flesh which He has... From verses 15 to 17, I want to think about the fullness which He brought. Oh, says John, there's a fullness in Him. It eclipses John the Baptist. It eclipses Moses. And of His fullness have we all received. Grace for grace. And finally, He said, I don't want you to forget about the Father. The Father that He declared. He says, nobody ever saw God. But he says, the only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. He hath declared Him. So we're not at any disadvantage. We have seen God embodied and incarnate in His Son. As we've been singing already. Through image of the infinite whose essence is concealed. Now, I finish there. You say, but all that, well, what does that really matter? Like, really, when it comes down, here we are on a Saturday afternoon and we could be away doing a little bit of shopping and so on. And we're sitting talking about these technical things. Well, maybe they're not just so technical, dear Christians. How do we get to know God? Is there anybody who will ever show us what God is like? Well, that's one thing. 
But better than that, is that anybody can not only show us what God is like, but can take people like us and bring us into God's family. Bring God out to us. And then bring us into God. You say, if you can get a person to do both, you'll have met the most important person in the universe. Here he is. He came out to us. He has brought us in so that he who is the Son of God has made millions the children of God. And the great movement of the ages has taken place in the incarnate Christ. There was no shortcut to doing that. When God was producing creatures, he spoke a word. When God was wanting to give birth to children, he had to allow his own son to be begotten. To become incarnate. It was a more costly and a more complicated process. And thank God it has taken place. And deity has touched humanity. And humanity have been swept up into the great circle of divine family and divine fellowship. I tell you, these things are stupendous. And absolutely breathtaking for little men and little minds like ours. But you see, our salvation depends on this. I'll just give the last word as I sit down to good old John Newton. What think ye of Christ, said he in his famous hymn? And you know the verse that goes something like this. Some take him a creature to be. A man. Or an angel at most. But they have not feelings like me. So wretched and guilty and lost. So guilty and helpless am I. I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I were sure he is God. And dear Christians, I can say, I can speak, I can speak for everybody in the building, about the six or seven hundred of us here, I can speak for us all with a single voice. We are absolutely sure. We stand with Peter. We may not understand the marvel of it and the mystery of it, but we rejoice in the mercy of it. And we say with Peter, We believe and are sure Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let the Jehovah Witnesses, let the modernists, let the skeptics, let the agnostics say what they will and go where they will. May God help us to stay by His Word, to bow at the feet of the Savior and to worship Him for His exclusive, essential and eternal Now I've taken a little extra there and I hope that Brian will bear with us and help us to get through these very precious verses. In these opening, this opening two verses, we have the Lord Jesus and he's he's put in the context of eternity and in relation to God. We likely want to say something about the time in the beginning. Our brethren will want to say something about the great title In the beginning, the Word. And the great triplet of statements here, in the beginning was the Word. Then number two, the Word was with God. Then number three, the Word was God. The triplet that are given us different aspects of the Lord Jesus in his eternal relationships with God. So help us on those great issues, brother. David, uh, Mark, Luke, and John all use the word beginning in the very first few verses of their Gospels. Matthew uses the word generation, a different word but somewhat similar concept. Um, 
do each of those have are each of those beginnings different and are they consistent with the theme of each gospel oh, definitely what, what our brother Sandy is mentioning if you go to Mark's gospel it's the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ and then immediately John the Baptist that's the beginning of the ministry when you get to Luke's gospel that's the servant gospel when you get to Luke's gospel Luke says I want to trace things back to the beginning and he talks about the birth that's the beginning of the manhood when you get to the royal gospel, Matthew, he goes back to the beginning, son of David, son of Abraham. That's back further still. So Mark's the beginning of the ministry. Luke's the beginning of the manhood. Matthew goes back to the beginning of the monarchy. John, he says, I want to speak about the divine one. He goes back to the beginning of all material things. He's further back still. So you have four beginnings, each one. Mark is the latest. Then Luke. Then Matthew, and here we are right back, I think here to Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Only, it doesn't say here, in the beginning God. It says, in the beginning was the Word. So there's somebody else with God. There's another person. You see, this is quite striking. And it opens up a whole window of inquiry. Do you want to answer that? Brother David, um, in the beginning, is this, in a sense, now you've linked it to Genesis 1 and 1, uh, which I believe to be the case, is this a reference to the beginning of time? We know eternity never had a beginning. Do you see what I'm getting at? Was there, uh, in eternity, did there come an occasion when time started? You see, I, I've often heard brethren say that this is the, what is it, the own beginning beginning. And if you can believe nonsense like that, you're welcome mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as the unbeginning beginning. A beginning has a beginning. Mm-hmm. And that's just and this is exactly the same point as Genesis one. With this exception, when you're reading Genesis in the beginning God created Moses is standing looking this way. He says day one, day two, day three, day four. So Moses has his back to the beginning and he's looking toward us. And he said, from that point and at that point, creation and so on. John takes his stand at the same position, and instead of looking towards us into history, John's looking the other direction, into eternity. Mm-hmm. And when everything that did begin began, the Word was there. Yeah. He never began. He never came to be. He was just there in all the fullness of his deity. He never became anything at the beginning. All that he ever was, he was still there. Mm-hmm unoriginated, uncreated, unlimited in his eternal existence. David? Sorry, 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 Mark. Uh, You've been pointing out that there's not a lot of sense in pushing the beginning back beyond Genesis 1, but there's really no need to. Isn't that the point? If he was in the beginning, then he was before the beginning, wherever you might imagine that to have been. That's very good. Very good. He was there as the word. So at that time, and all that he ever was from eternity, he was just there in the fullness of his being. And the title that's given to him here, maybe our brethren would like to elaborate upon it, he's the Word. What exactly? When I was a child, as I say, when I learned this in Sunday school, I used to wonder if it had said in the beginning was the Lord Jesus. He's not mentioned Jesus Christ until verse 14. You'd wonder who is this person? He's the Word, he's the light. Who is he? But when you get to verse 17, you've no problem. He's Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. But I wondered if it said in the beginning was Jesus Christ, 
I, but what's the word? And why does it say the word? And what are we intended to appreciate by this unusual title? What makes it more remarkable is John is out to assert that he is the Son of God. Humanly speaking, we would have thought he would have begun with, in the beginning was the Son. But instead he says, in the beginning was the Word. And uh, among other thoughts that come to mind, it certainly suggests that God intended eternally to communicate with us. He eternally was the Word. And so in that sense, God intended eternally to communicate His message, His mind to us. But of course also it carried the idea of the, the, the rationale, the, the reason, the, the very purpose for things. Right. Right. So, so what, our brother, what our brother is emphasizing, when you start at the boundaries of this passage, in the first verse is the Word. In verse 18 he's the only begotten Son. There are two things that God is interested in. Number one is revelation. Number two is relationship. And through the one who is the Word, God has spoken. Just as our words reveal our mind, God has spoken and given the revelation. But He's also, that one who is the Word, the ultimate revelation, He's in a special relationship. And we get the revelation and we are brought through Him into a relationship with the eternal being. That's the wonder of what we are reading in this passage. So keep those two things in mind. Revelation and relationship and they are go hand in hand throughout the chapter. Sorry, you didn't mention First John in regard to beginnings. I don't want to uh, put you off the track, maybe, but First John one I, that beginning. What? Uh, don't put me off the track if you can help it. I'll never <laughs> get back on the rails again, Andrew. No, I. And if you disagree with this, don't even dare to speak or move. <laughs> don't even dare to speak. You'll you'll grow into you'll grow into full maturity. I, I take the beginning of First John one to be exactly the same as here, and I know that ninety percent of the audience don't agree. But never let on, <laughs> never let on. Just pretend yourself to be intelligent until we're dealing with First John. Sometimes I take it that which was from the beginning. So the eternal one who was from the beginning moved into time until we could handle him and see him and listen to him. The eternal invisible one became visible, audible, and he moved from the beginning into history. That's what I take First John to be. Now he was, was the word, his, his infinity. Then in the second clause I want to speak about his intimacy. He was with God. He was in closest communion with God. Intelligent and intimate. Close. So that here the one is in harmony and in perfect fellowship with God. Then we have his identity. He was God. You see, you could be with God in a sense and not be God. When was he? In the beginning. Where was he? He was with God. Who was he? He was God in all that that means. I was going to say, David, the word Elohim at the very beginning of Genesis is an important word, isn't it? Yes. And I was also going to say that one of our early preachers in the north of England was preaching on the everlasting sonship of Christ and a skeptic got up in the meeting and said, how could a son be as old as his father and the preacher immediately answered he couldn't have been a father 
<laughs> very good. We have to be careful in bringing natural reasoning into mm. these divine relationships. That's not the idea at all, as our brother, as our brother has mentioned. Now, anything further on, on verse 1, because we'll have to keep moving. It's a key verse. It'd be almost impossible to overemphasize it. We sometimes read it. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh, the Word was God. Well, That's not it at all. No, no, Never no. read it like that when you get your knuckles stuck. It's not the word was God. It's the word was God. The emphasis is on the last, the last noun. Not a God. Not James Moffat years ago translated this. The word was divine. The new world translation of the Jehovah Witnesses is he was a God. Never will do. Never will do. The word God later in the passage is without the article. And you don't, there was a man sent from God. There's no article there. And the JWs don't translate that. There was a man sent from a God. No man has seen God. No article there. Doesn't say no man has seen a God. So here, there's no article. So don't translate it a God here either. It's inconsistent. You know, maybe I should say, but you never know these things can come up. The New World Translation, there was a very famous Greek grammar years ago by people called Dana and Mante. H.E. Donna Julius Armante. Those were the two authors. And when the New World Translation translated this verse, the word was a God, as if there were a number of gods. They claimed Donna and Monty's Greek grammar as the basis, as the basis for their translation. Eventually, Dr. Monty heard about this, and he was horrified, horrified, that they should ever use his grammar to support their translation. And he produced a little booklet called A Grossly Misinterpreted, Mistranslated Statement. He didn't want them using his name in great grammar to support their poisonous translation. We just keep it as it is, dear Christians. The Word was God. And everything that God means in the essence of his being was absolutely true of his eternal son. Uh, just in, in relation to the three phrases here in verse 1 you can see how this revelation is rejected through the gospel of John three times uh, they sought to kill the Lord okay. chapter 8 uh, at the end it was in response to his statement before Abraham was I am okay. so they rejected in the beginning was the word in chapter 5 they said you make God your father making yourself equal with God so they're rejecting that the word was with God. And then in chapter 10, Thou being a man, makest thyself God. So they're rejecting that the word was God. That's excellent. Very good. Very good. And verse number 2, just gather that all together. Verse number 1 is a window showing us what was before the beginning. There was God and the word. Verse number 2 is to tell us what existed at the beginning. He says, when you come to the point of the beginning, the word was there. The same was in the beginning with God. But it wasn't static. For having spoken about the word and the forever he enjoyed, verse number 3, he speaks about the framework he produced. He said, this one who was with God, all things were made by him. So he's now the creator. John uses uh, at least four different prepositions. Mm. Uh, was with God, standing before God, the face of God. I think he used the word communion. But then came forth from God the idea of coming from the presence of God 
There's another word, he came out from God, from beside God. But the expression, I was interested in the expression in chapter 8, he proceeded forth and came from God. Seems to be from very essence of God. You thought out those four oh, I have really thought those out surely, Alan. We'll not elaborate any more upon them just now. Just a slightly different thing in chapter 17. The glory which I had with thee. That's para in Greek. This one, the word was with, is pros, which means towards. You know, I'm with Brother Higgins, but I'm not towards him. And towards him now. I was with him. And with brother Robert. The Lord Jesus was not only with the Father. Parah. Beside him. He was towards him. In face to face. Intelligent. Intimate. Eternally turned towards the Father. So it's a bond of closest intimacy. When it says the word was with God. Not just beside him. But actually directed towards him. And enjoying his presence. Sorry brother John. David, uh, in a sense, in a limited sense, you're even presently just now doing what you're doing, expressing God and the mind of God uh-huh. and opening up His truth to, to us. Uh, but that's not the sense in which the Word is the expression of God. This is a self-expression. Yeah. It, no, that's good, John. It's not, just, it's not just that the Lord Jesus was the messenger. Mm-mm. He was the messenger. It's not just that he spoke the word. He himself was the word. Mm-hmm. You've heard great men from different platforms across who speak the word of God. There's not one of them ever say, I am the word of God. Mm. So that's the intensity. It's a, the actual identity of his being. He's the embodiment in himself. Apart from what he says. Everything that he says will have to be God's word because he is the word. So that it's a very intense. He's not just the bearer of the message. He is the embodiment mm-hmm. of the message. It's a very intense expression there. Thanks, John. Does verse 2 emphasize the distinctiveness of the Son from the Father by showing that there is a separate person? And this would help combat the Islamic societies that would come and tell us that there can be no Son. Mm-hmm. Exactly. They have been distinguished already in verse 1. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that from eternity there were two persons. The Word was with God. So there was the Word and there was God. Distinct persons. Essentially equal. But then when you get to verse 2, this same person right at the point of the beginning is with God. And at that point, what does he do? He produces all things. So that he's not only there in his essence, now we have his action in verse 3. Marvellous. Just great I think about this, dear Christians. All things. This is the one that's our Saviour. All things were made by him. So that just to be no exceptions. Without him was not one thing made that was made. So you've got the three was's of verse 1. Now you've got the three maids of verse 3. Universally all things. Itemized. Not one thing. It was all produced by him. Planets and primroses. Galaxies and gladiolas. All things were made by him. Absolutely nothing outside of him. I'm not... Sorry, go ahead. 
No, we've nothing, no other comment. We have the word creating in verse 3. Then we have the word animating in verse 4. In him was life. Then we have the word illuminating. Verse 4. The life was the light of men. You see the way this building up? You get the word, then you have life. Then you have life. Then you have the word triumphing. The light shines and the darkness comprehends it not. I think a little hint of the fall coming in there. There's darkness coming into the picture in verse 5, but the light still shines on, unvanquished and still triumphant. So that verse 4 is not the incarnate Christ. Verse 4 is that all life that ever existed or came into being came because of Him. And that life, the existence of life, was God's light to men of a divine Creator. Is that how you see it? Everybody got that. That's exactly, exactly as I see it. Now, I'll just go through that a little bit, just a little bit more slowly, and just find out what our brother has said very precisely. Verse 3, all things were made. I just think. But then in this great universe, there's all kinds of life. Trees, fish, birds, humans, angels. Where did all that burst of life come from? All things were made by him, but life is in him. So that every insect that crawls, every bird that flies depends on him. And all created life, all animation. It's really amazing, dear. Like life, the study of life forms, the multiplicity of life forms in this universe, it just baffles scientists, never mind baffles creatures like myself. Millions of life forms, all from him. You know, if it wasn't for him, gravity would finish. Mm-hmm. Planets wouldn't fall into their orbit. Electrons would no longer go round their nuclei or whatever electrons do. It would never happen. He's keeping atoms and protons and neurons. He's keeping it all there. You're, you're in Colossians 1, brother, aren't you? Oh, by him all things consist pulled together. <laughs> He's robbing from all of us. <laughs> all of our chapters. So that there's life in him. Now you say, but then what is the purpose of that life? The purpose of all those multi-forms of life was to teach men, to give men life that they would seek the Creator. The life was the life, the light of men. That is, it's the light of men. The rocks are not expected to find the Creator. And even the donkeys don't find the Creator. But intelligent human beings. These multi-forms of life that science admires, that's supposed to teach human beings intelligently to respond to a Creator. The life was the light of men. Then darkness came into the world. The whole thing was obscured. You say that's the light snuffed out now. No. He says the light still triumphed. The light still kept shining down the ages B.C. I take the end of verse number 5 to be ages B.C. Right down before the incarnation. Light was shining in the world. It was the light of this Christ whom we have now seen and trusted. Brother David, what about verse number 4? For example, past tense. It would be quite an order if it had said, in him is life. Uh-huh. And even at the very beginning, uh, the word was with God. Well, the word is still with God. Uh-huh. And sometimes in some of these other passages you'll find the present tense used. Uh-huh. Um, so I just wondered, uh, in him was life. Well, 
in him still is life, really. Oh, surely. Sure. I think it's just looking at, at the word in eternity, mm-hmm. and then we're looking at the word in history. Mm-hmm. So we're putting those in past tenses, but they're timeless tenses. It's just was, was. There's certain things that became, but this is not something that became. It wasn't that suddenly life became in him. Life was eternally in him, but at creation he imparted that life to others of these millions of bodies that we hear about and think about. Sorry. Sorry, David. Isn't it it worth uh, stressing the fact that this is still the great crux for the evolutionist? He can come up with a system that explains how you get from A to B after a fashion, but he still can't answer where the life came from Mm -hmm. in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so the life continues to be a testimony Mm -hmm. because it is the thing that cannot be explained away. Very good, Mark. So you get my brother Mark saying, scientists can tell you how you get from A to B and from B to C, but the question that science can't answer is, how did we get to A? And we are discovering the answer here. Because before A, there was the Logos. Now, just when I'm talking about that, it doesn't say here that Christ, all things were made by Christ. There'll be a man talking about Colossians. He'll tell us the difference later on. It doesn't say all things were made by the sun and the air. You'll hear a brother talking in Hebrews 1 will tell you the difference. Why are all things here? All things were made by the Logos. By the Word. That's why scientists can talk about intelligent design. Because programmed into creation has been the message of cells. They, they decode the cells. The DNA is the human code. They decode and they can't... Scientists are just absolutely amazed with the amount of information that is encoded in the leaf of every tree, in the egg of every bird. Where did all that come from? Where did all the coding take place? It's because the one who produced that was the Logos. The eternal intelligence. The old Greeks thought that the Logos was the principle that produced the universe. It was a principle of, a mysterious principle that put everything into place. John says, listen, gentlemen and ladies, I want to tell you what the old Greeks talked about as a vague principle that you could just hardly explain. It's not a principle at all, it's a person. And it's a person who has been here, and we have seen him, and we know him. It's not vague. It's actually the Lord Jesus. It makes it closer and warmer. Brother Jack. I was wondering, Brother David, if the lampstand in the tabernacle would help us here with the thought of life and light. And uh, keeping in mind that there was no shittim wood in the lampstand. It was all of gold. So here is something that is pre-incarnation. Very good, Jack. Very, very helpful and thought-provoking comment there. Now, that's the Word and the great forever he enjoyed. The Word and the great framework that he produced. Anyone want to say anything before we go to the Word and the forerunner whom he followed? That will bring us to verse 6. But anything else rather than in verses 3 to 4, feel free to... Uh, in verse 5 this word comprehended could you give us some light on that light (laughs) it's light the light the darkness comprehended sometimes this word comprehend has to do with just what it says Mm -hmm. appreciating understanding sometimes it has to do with capturing or arresting or the idea of conquering 
maybe both are in it to a certain extent. I'm inclined to think that it's mainly the latter sense here, that even though darkness came into the world, it didn't extinguish the light. The light still kept shining. Right down the ages, there was still light. There was still witness. There was still a testimony being born, despite all the sin and all the darkness. And, you know, it's great to know, dear Christians, that darkness cannot conquer light. There's a thing about light. If this whole room was full of darkness, and I lit one candle, one small candle would conquer this big room of darkness. There's a power in light. Just as there are power in a word, there's a power in light. And all the darkness, wherever light is, it has a triumphant, victorious conquest over the powers of darkness. And yet darkness is a very real... Would you see, David, any connection between that expression, comprehended not, and the word guum not, uh, subsequently? Uh, I see a connection. Uh, and the received and not, all yeah, these exactly. I think all these negatives, mm-hmm. comprehended not, knew not, received him not, all these negatives are showing that running alongside there is disbelief, but disbelief has never triumphed. There's still faith and light mm-hmm. and light that is being produced. No. I was going to say, against that background of disbelief, there is a continual fresh revelation of God and His grace. Creation, then John the Baptist, and then the Lord Jesus Himself coming out constantly to reveal God in in fresh and new ways. That's great. Does everybody see what what we're doing there? In verse number 1, it's eternity. We're looking back through the window of the beginning into the measureless eternity. Then, the morning of creation, verse 3. Then providence and light shining on all the different light forms in creation, verses 4 and 5, the fall, and right down those B.C. centuries. Now, we take another big step, verse 6. There's a man suddenly appears who has a special announcement to make. He's a startling figure. There was a man sent from God, and this is the fourth. God sent a special messenger to herald the arrival in public ministry of the everlasting word. So, we can take a little look now at the ministry of John. Three things I would say, because it's not maybe our main subject. In verse number 6, John's a prophet. There was a man sent from God. That's what that means. Mm. A prophet was a man sent by God. I know we make a sermon out of that he was a man and that a man needs to be sent by God. And all of those things are very good. But the main point is, he was a prophet. And we'll come back to that. Verse 7, he was an evangelist. Because the reason for this man coming preaching was that all men might believe. That's what an ev- He directed men to believe. And he was not only a prophet and an evangelist, he was a witness. Verse number 8, a very big ministry. Mm-hmm. But he definitely wasn't the word, he was just a witness. So help us on that little paragraph, brother. There's a big difference between a man sent from God and further on in the book when we speak, we hear, read of God sent his son. Two very different things, right? <laughs> I, l- listen, there, there are three, maybe three differences. Are, a man sent from God. We have just been reading about the Word was with God. Mm-hmm. John the Baptist was never with God. 
John the Baptist was never with God. He was sent from God. John the Baptist was a man. We have just read about Christ. The word was God. Hmm. There came, or there became. John the Baptist was from God. He became. He was a man. The Lord Jesus said, He was with God. He was God. And he was. He never became God. He was God. Hmm. So there are three big differences between the word and the witness that are seen in this particular. And yet he was a very special man hmm. with a very special ministry. The Lord, uh, in this Gospel of John, uh, the bearing witness is very important. Oh, I think it's so over 50 times you get it. Yeah. And here it's John bearing the witness. But later on the Lord said twice in John, I think it's chapters 5 and 10, the works that I do bear witness. So you're the witness of John, you're the witness of his works and so on. You're the witness of the Father. Yeah, oh I The yes, witness sir. of the woman of oh, Samaria. Mm-hmm. So that's a big, big subject in, in yeah. these verses. David, you've been referring to him as John the Baptist. Yet the writer of this gospel doesn't call him John the Baptist, does he? No, he just, he just assumes that everybody knows the other one. Yeah. <laughs> he just assumes. Very gracious. Some of us have to distinguish ourselves, you know. <laughs> we wouldn't want anybody to mix us up. And John just knew. John, didn't need, John wrote the gospel, but John did not need to say, actually, I'm referring to the other brother who was John. Just knew, as soon as you hear about John a preacher, everybody knows the other one. Nobody thinks of me as a preacher. John was just like that. Go ahead, brother. Didn't mention his own relations. Go ahead. He's <coughs> widening things. There's not now a message just for Israel. This is for all things, for all men. And there's now a fullness coming in. And then the other thing is the first occasion where the word believe is used in the gospel. Oh, good. That's, there's a, all those... If we were going through the gospel, and that's very helpful, our brother Brian has said, all the words, we'd want to see the word witness, the word life, the word light, the word believe, all these words that come up in the gospel for the first time in this four word, this introductory, we're being introduced here to everything that's coming. So when we get those big things in the middle of the gospel, we don't say, where did that come from? We all got it here. John introduces us quietly. Now, you'll notice in verse number 7 that all men through him might believe. Oh, that's a big difference, isn't it? You believe through John. But when Christ comes, what do you do? You believe in him. John says, I don't want people to believe in me. He says, I want them to believe through me. Because there's one coming that's far greater and people can believe in him. So again, it's the difference between the messenger and the Messiah that is coming after. These early mentions too, David, are important. I think if I can remember correctly, you get the light mentioned 23 times in John. And interestingly enough, the verb to believe is a great Johannine word. It's 98 times, if I remember correctly, in the Gospel of John. So here we have it here, the light and believing and so on. And yet the, and bearing witness. And yet the word faith never meant No, that's true. For all the, all the emphasis upon believing, John never used the abstract. Now, now, I think we don't need to say any more about that. You know, our brother Malcolm Radcliffe was here. And I hope we'll see him before us all over in the will of God. He would telling us today, he would say John was the lamp. Christ was the light. John was the porter. Christ was the door. John was the voice. Christ was the word. John was the best man. 
Christ was the bridegroom. It's great to have a preacher. That's the, that's the qualities of a witness, an evangelist, a preacher. He can put himself out of the picture and leave people looking at nothing and no one but Christ himself. That's what we've been told here. So that now, you say, but God's going to bring in his son. Will anybody know about it? Yes, I tell you, they'll know about it. Because this arrival of the everlasting word is such a sensational, unparalleled event. God made a big announcement in a public way. And John the Baptist turned the place upside down by his public preaching. That's what we're being. It's getting closer. From eternity, creation, history. Now we get the forerunner. Now verse number 9. The Saviour has arrived. And having arrived in verse 9, that was the true light we've got the attitudes. There's an attitude in verse 10. There's another attitude in verse 11. And then there's a further attitude in verse 12. So once he arrives in verse 9, the big important thing for every man is how his attitude is towards this glorious divine person who has stepped into history. So this, David, is one of the titles of the Lord Jesus, the light. Now what I have in my mind, John was a light. And we are lights, and that's very clear in the epistles. Uh-huh. But he was not that light. Oh. There's only one person that uh, fits that designation. Uh, exactly. Light, light again is a wonderful, a wonderful study. And uh, the true light, hmm. you know, there's physical light, but then there's moral light, just as there's physical darkness and there's moral darkness. And everything that physical light represented, that was all embodied in the Saviour who was the true light, the true bread, the true vine. Those three great expressions that we get in this Gospel. Now do you understand the last part of verse 9? Every man that cometh into the world, cometh into the world is, is the true light. I, uh, Can you say of any man, uh, any other person apart from the Lord Jesus that they came into the world? I sure we are born. Or that, you know, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And now, what our brother Andrew, the good what our brother Brian said earlier, do you see the breadth of verse 9? I think that verse 9 should be understood, if not read, at least understood. Like, that was the true light which, coming into the world, mm-hmm. sheds his light upon every man. So he not only brought light for the nation of Israel, he brought light for the human race. And by his arrival into the world, there was a blaze of light that became apparent that never had been seen before. Are you seeing a progression here in verse 4 and then in verse 5 we have light of men. Then you have this concept, if I can use that word, of light shining in darkness. And now you have the light, capital L, which has been helpfully provided, which now is actively lighting every man. That is exactly parallel to Genesis 1. You remember in the first day of creation, God said, let there be light. And again we say, there was light. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just a God, Whatever God said had to be, had to be. God said, let there be light, and there was light. So there was light on day one. There was light on day two. There was light on day three. But then, on day four, God said, we're going to make a special light. So that there was a concentration of light that was called the S-U-N. Now, there had been light the first three days. The scientists all puzzled about that, and young earths and old earthers and all sorts of fellows worry about that. 
I don't worry, God is light. And there was light, for, but then there was a special blaze of light on day four. You see, for quite a number of centuries before Christ came, there was light. There was light in the Word. There was the light of the Old Testament Scriptures. Mm-hmm. There was the light of the Jewish... But you see, when Christ arrived, that was like the setting of the sun in the sky, a concentration of light. Mm-hmm. And there was a blaze of light in the incarnate Saviour. Day four, after 4,000 years, the light of providence that had already been existed was eclipsed entirely. So that we have the Lord Jesus providentially in these earlier verses. Then we have him prophetically through John the Baptist, the last of the prophets. Now we have him personally. He's here. And that's verse number nine. And if a man's going to get light, he'll have to get light through him. There's no other source. Sorry, Brother Walter, go ahead. Then just to follow that, Brother David, true light is not true as opposed to false. It's complete light that had been partial light before, but now he has arrived as complete light, who in verse 18 has fully declared, fully declared the Father. Very, and and the same, that's the same as the true bread. It's not that the matter was false bread. And he's the true vine. It's not that Israel was a false vine. They were failing, I know that, or that an ordinary vine is a false vine, but all that that represented has now been embodied in him and expressed fully in a beautiful expression. He's the word, he's the life, and now he's, he's the light. David, before, it, sorry, I was going to say before you leave verse 9, you have uh, uh, all men, right? And back in verse 7, you have uh, every man. So what I'm wondering is if we transpose that to the gospel. It, it gives us a little indication of God's intentions for all. It's so loved the word. Absolutely. You can stay in John's gospel. That's it. Yeah. Now, does this mean that every man will get saved? No. no, it does not, but it certainly means that every man could be saved. So that if a man's going to get light, there's light enough for every man. He may close his eyes to it, mm-hmm. he may turn his back on it. But still the light has shone and universal illumination and salvation has been provided as a result mm-hmm. of the Saviour's coming. Now, after his arrival, what about the attitudes? I, I entitled this the family. Now, here's the natural family, just the people of Nazareth. He was in the world. I always think these are amazing statements. Mm-hmm. These triplets and John. He was in the world. How much is involved in that? And the world was made by him. The Creator walking in a street of a, a small village. And the world knew him not. Never got excited, never bothered. Just lived as if the Creator had never arrived. You know, there were people who lived in the village of Nazareth. And it never dawned on them yet that the person that was in the carpenter's shop in that village was the great Creator. Listen. They knew him not. Just total apathy. Now I wonder, I wonder, is it that they didn't know him? Is it that they didn't want to know him? Or is it that they didn't bother to get to know him when he was so close? He was people I would love to know, but they live in America. So I'd hardly ever get to know them. They're too far away. Or they live maybe in Japan. I hear about them, but I just, but the Savior had come from another world right into close quarters. And there were people just never even put themselves out to get to know him. 
things haven't changed very much really. Isn't that the actual meaning of the verb to know here? Uh, to get to know. To get in spite of all he did among them, they never got to, to know. know. Exactly. Sorry, Donald. Is, is the world used in three different senses in these three references? Yes, go ahead. Help us there, right? I'll let you do that. One is the physical world. The other one is the created world, and the other is the system of the world. Is that right? That I, I would say, if you if you keep in the back of your mind, just as our brother, in, in John's writings, the word is used very frequently. It's another one of these terms comes up in three senses. First of all, you've got the material world, the universe, planets, and trees, and rivers. Then you have got the mankind world, the world of human beings, the world of men. God so loved the world. That's not that God loved the trees. That's the world of men. So not just the material world and the world of men. You've got the moral world. The world as a system that is anti-God and that lies in the wicked one. And I think those, some of those meanings at least are reflected in this text. Now there will be a development in verse 11. He was in the world. That was his presence. And it was just apathy. But then, the one who had been in the world for 30 years, he made a move. Not his presence, his presentation. He came. He moved and presented himself unto his own people, the nation. Not just the natural family of Adam, marked by apathy, but now the national family. The Jewish people, and they're marked by antagonism. They wouldn't have him at all. His own people just would not receive him. No welcome. Didn't want him. And that's a very, a very serious indictment of their unbelief. Is there a difference between his own and the verse? Verse 11? The first his own and the second his own. I go ahead, Andrew. You have, uh, just you elaborate a wee bit upon that. I take a break here. <laughs> well, I'm used to reading in Spanish, and, it, and, and it's, it's, it shows the difference very clearly. He came onto his own things, or what belonged to him, and then his own people received him not. So, right, so that's that's so, so. The first one is things, and the second one is people. So now just, how would we understand that then? Uh, how do we understand? That's the difference in the language. What, what would be included? His own people, that's the Jewish nation. But what's his own things? What would we, what would we think of as included in that? What he made is creation. No? no? I, 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 I mean, uh, certainly that's a, I, I put that in the previous verse. He was in the world and the world was made by him. But I'm inclined to think, maybe I'm wrong, in this verse he came to his own thing. His own temple. His own land. His own city. Jerusalem was the city of the great king. There was a little part of the big earth that belonged to him in a special way. And that's the very place where his blood was shed. That's the ground where his precious blood was shed. He came unto his own and his own, his own things, and his own people, would not have him. And when it says they received him not, I think we're expected to understand it in the, the positive sense, not just they didn't receive him, they outrightly rejected him. Mm-hmm. And Brother Gary, 
is not the great tragedy, David, that things are not fatalistic. The sad reality is there was light, his own things, but there was desperate unbelief. Exactly. Exactly. John makes that very clear, so that it wasn't that he didn't arrive, but it was their attitude to the one who did arrive, and that's still what determines destiny, even to this present day. Isn't it solemn at the end, Brother David, that even Pilate said to, to him, thine own nation and the chief priests deliver thee unto me. So at the very end they were still rejecting him. So, uh, exactly. I, uh, well, Is that possibly why he used the his own? producing proprietorship shows the gravity of the rejection of the Savior. Exactly. Exactly. So there was a special... When these people rejected Christ, they were sinning against centuries of special light. Not just the general light, but centuries of special light that God had given the nation. Now, the other thing, there's another reference to his own that we always love. Once you get to chapter 13, the Savior has been rejected in chapter 12. But you begin chapter 13, Jesus having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. There's another group called his own. It's not now a national group, it's a new group. A very special group. And they're described in verse number 12. Because despite natural and national rejection, there will be some who do receive him. And as many as received him, we are glad to be amongst that group, to them give he power to become children of God, even to them that believe in his name. There are many other comparisons between this section of John and John 13 that you've mentioned. One that is very obvious, not to rush ahead, but verse 18, uh, rather, yes, verse 18, he's in the bosom of the Father. You come to his own in chapter 13, and now it's John in the bosom of Christ. Mm -hmm. And many other links that you can make between those two sections uh, that is uh, highlighted by this expression, his own. That's very good on... I know our brother could develop that a good wee bit more. But that's the point of these verses. Mm-hmm. To show us that through the revelation of the word, we have been brought into a close relationship with God. He came out to bring us in. Mm-hmm. And we have been moving from eternity into history. John the Baptist, starting the public ministry of the Lord Jesus. Calvary, they received him. Not, and you say the whole thing's a failure. He came from heaven and he has died upon a cross and he is hardly a friend to stand beside him. And the nation that he had prepared for centuries to receive him when he arrived, they just turned their back upon him. The whole thing, the whole plan has just ended in smithereens. No, no, says John, don't think that. He says, there's another group, there's a new family. As many as received him, opened it as wide to the Gentiles. And they are now his own, as we have been speaking about in this new relationship. David, we, we see how verse 12 just answers verse 10 and 11. In verse 10, he wasn't recognized. In verse 11, he wasn't received. But in verse 12, as many as received him, even to them that believe in his name, they receive him. In contrast to 11, they recognize who he is, believe in his name. In contrast to Very good. So it's just, it's just the total opposite. They receive him. Once they receive him, they get a right. You say you wouldn't. A fellow like you wouldn't dare to say you're a child of God. You have no right to say you're a child of God. You? You say, but I haven't. 
But there was one that I received, one that he gave me the right. You say, but how could he give you the right? He's the eternal Son of God. And the eternal Son of God came here and died, rejected by the nation, but all who do receive him, he gives them a right. But you say, is it just a title? A lot of people have titles and there's nothing behind it. John says, it's not just a title, it's a reality. When he says, they not only have the title to be the children of God, he says, they've actually experienced a birth. That's verse 13. Mm. Verse 13. Which were born. These children had a new birth. Not just a, re- a reality, but they now have a regeneration. Having received him, that led to a new birth that's described in that verse in detail. It's lovely how regeneration happens, David. You know, I'm thinking at the end of verse number 12, even to them that believe on his name which were born. In other words, when someone believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are regenerated. Oh, yeah. nice. Yeah. Sure. Ah. You don't believe that, do you? <laughs> you don't believe that. Sure, you have to be born again before you could believe. You're a dead sinner. I know. As dead as could be. And you can do nothing as good. And if you're a dead sinner, to believe is a good thing. So you must have been born again before you believe. And the first action of the new life that is imparted to you by the sovereign operation of the Holy Spirit in regeneration, the first act of that new life is to believe. So as soon as you're born again, simultaneously you believe. In chapter 3, David, where we have regeneration big time, with the verb to believe eight times. So, it's, the believing is... Yeah, listen, listen, dear. <laughs> Just listen. listen. I'm glad the you Bible, pulled yourself Bible, around, David. The Bible doesn't say, whosoever lives will believe. No. The Bible says, whosoever believes will live. The Bible doesn't say, they that live shall hear. The Bible says, they that here shall live. Mm-hmm. So, old Wesley's thing doesn't annoy me at all. As soon as my all I ventured, I'm maybe not fussy about that word, but as soon as my all I trusted upon Christ and his atoning blood, mm-hmm. the Holy Spirit entered and I was born of God. Mm-hmm. Repent, believe, be born again. Mm-hmm. They received him. In receiving him, they believed on his name. Verse 12 and John says, you've hardly done that until verse 13 is true. By believing, you're born again. Mm-hmm. Not of ancestry. Not a matter of blood. Not of ambition. It's not the will of the flesh. It's not a matter of activity. The will of man. He said there's a divine operation that takes place as a response to simple. This is the family of faith that has now been introduced. Uh, the, uh, sorry. Oh, no, go, go ahead, man. No. Well, please. Mark, you should be right here. <laughs> Sorry, I was giving you a crick in your neck. Um, I was just going to ask you, you've been emphasizing that it's, it's children of God here, not sons of God. Um, could you tell us a little bit about what's bound up in those titles and, and the different emphases that they have? Uh, well, especially, well, maybe, I'll maybe forbear, Mark, to go too much into the writings of the Apostle Paul. But when we're thinking about the, uh, John, John never calls us I know the reference in Revelation 21, never speaks about believers in this period now 
as sons of God. He reserves that exclusively for the Lord Jesus. A title of dignity. He is the son in an eternal and a special sense. When asked children is a, ti- is a title of birth. We are now children. He's not a son because he was born. But we are children because we have been born by a special supernatural experience into the family. So it's dignity and it's birth that's involved respectively in those two great terms, son and children. Now maybe we should move on. Mm-hmm. There's just We're making nice progress here. And uh, Now that's the end of that first big section. That's the word coming down to us until we have a special birth. Now, the next section, we are starting with his special birth. The virgin birth, verse 14. His birth. We move back through John the Baptist, verse 15. And we move back through Moses, verse 17, and we're right back up to eternity in verse 18. So it's from eternity to our birth, in verses 1 to 13, it's from his birth back to eternity, in verses 14 to 18. So let us think about the word and flesh. The flesh he assumed. The word was made flesh. David. Sorry, George. Could I just uh, ask you a, a general question here at this point? Uh, you would say that the, the broad subject of the whole Bible reading today is the Word, right through these recent verses too. Uh, the question I want to ask and get help on is, outside of these 18 verses, yes. how much do we have in the Bible, or even alluded to, of the Word, the subject of the Word? Uh, I, I, I would say, John, and like you know, I, I know it was behind your question. I would say it's vast. It's vast. You say, where does it start this whole subject of the creative word? It starts in Genesis 1. Ten times in Genesis 1 you read, and God said. Psalm 33, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. So that he sent his word and healed them. So that God's word as having creative energy is something that goes right through the Bible. But it's not just, we're learning now that that great word that has such power and authority, it was all expressed in a person. This is the person who has now become mm-hmm. our saviour. And maybe we should say that outside of this chapter, in First John, the Lord Jesus is the word of life. In Revelation chapter 19, he's the word of God. What's the difference? Here is the word. First John, the word of life. Revelation chapter 19, as he comes back to conquer the enemies, he's the word of God. Those are the only three passages where the Lord Jesus is specifically referred to as the word. What's the difference in the titles? And the emphasis. Don't brainstorm me, brother. People say I talk too much, so I'm giving everybody an opportunity to talk now. So just go ahead. Well, if nobody has anything to say on that, buddy, verse number 14. The word became Hassam. I knew you would come to a rescue, sir. <laughs> uh, I was thinking of something maybe a little different from what we've been hearing, and that is to think of maybe men assemblies. And they were very sound as to their doctrine. And what you But today, the Christian is very different. 
you would find very, very, very few that would say amen to the teaching here today. Mm. I'm not saying it's wrong now mm. for a moment of time. Now, the thing that worries me is that presently there are writings coming from there, <coughs> reprinted, made uh, possible for believers and assemblies to get, and is certainly not good. For younger men sometimes maybe would swallow just those. And they're taken up. Sometimes you'd hear maybe coming out a bit in a conference. And it gives me quite a bit of concern. It's not for the good of assemblies. And trust that the saints of God will be careful for the teachings that come from an assembly of God. And beware of those that come from the other uh, source. And of course, you could get false doctrine in an assembly as well, but that should be very, very seldom. I know. I, I appreciate those words of caution, Brother McBride. We need to be careful. I can nearly tell, listening to some brethren, what 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 books they're reading and what what downloads they're listening to. There's ministry that I hear, and it has a mega church flavour that I think just falls into the category of what our brother is saying. I don't like to hear it. There's just, I'm not, our brother Sandy knows this, and I'm not even thinking it. We're delighted to have him here. It's an honor to have him. A lot of it, Americanisms, and the mega church mentality that he is, knows about, and is a great grief over in his country. We just need to watch all of those things, and a popularization, and almost a slangy way of referring to things. We need to be very, very careful. And here's just the very point. The word was made flesh. In speaking, if there's any area where it's important to keep the biblical language, it's when we're speaking about the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. Especially on... Now, just as I should have is the word here personally. That's John. First John is not the person of the word. It's the provision of the word. The word of life. He brings life. In Revelation 19, it's the power of the word. He's the word of God. And he will come to demolish all of God's enemies. So the three titles are corresponding to the three But here, the stoop. I want our brothers to speak about that. The great stoop. The sojourn. He dwelt. And the Shekinah. The glory. There was a glory with him that marked him out as absolutely distinct. In verse 14. Sorry, brother. Me, David, you've answered your own question. I was going to say the, the word that as we're gathering here, that brings light, the word in relation to those who are deceived, the word of life for those who are dead, and the word of God was going to defeat all enemies. You mentioned, no, you, you, you did mention uh, in one of your remarks, the word became flesh. So this is a, a, a self-incarnating, if you will, correct? Involuntary, a, voluntary a voluntary one, perhaps a better way of putting it. And tabernacle dwelt so is John beginning to introduce a theme that will be followed throughout the chapters that this is genuine replacement theology? The Lord Jesus replacing everything in the nation of Israel. Chapter 1, the tabernacle. Chapter 2, the temple. Chapter 3, the types and so on. Good. Good. So that's what our brothers drawing attention to is this beautiful word dwelt. In fact, maybe the word became flesh. Somebody asked me recently, it says it was made, but it's the verb became. Mm-hmm. Someone was asking me recently, David, what does it mean that he became? 
did he change? Did he change? And did he stop being now what he was? Mm. Now that's what we need to. Mm. A, a, an acorn becomes an oak tree. But when an acorn becomes an oak tree, it's no longer an acorn. It has stopped being an acorn. It has now become an oak tree. Become a change of identity. When it says the Lord Jesus became flesh, it doesn't mean that he ceased to be what he was. If I say about, um, what will I say? Say a millionaire, a businessman. And if I say that the millionaire businessman, Joe Smith, has become President of the United States. That's a difference there. Because Joe Smith, the millionaire, is still a millionaire. He's still Joe Smith, but he has become President. He hadn't to change or give up being a millionaire to become President. That's the sense here. Everything that the Lord Jesus was, all that God was, he still was. But now he stooped into humanity and he became flesh. And tabernacle, that's the brother, what her brother was. He tabernacled among us. That's a beautiful term. Just you want to elaborate slightly yeah. on that, Brother Sandy? Just you, uh, no, pitched his tent, dwelt amongst us. Um, the idea that here was the glory of God again in, in human form. And just, uh, you, you think, you think, dear Christians, of... You think of the tabernacle. You think of all those pictures you see of the tabernacle. Whether they're altogether accurate, it gives us a bit. You see the picture of the tabernacle. You have all those hundreds and hundreds of tents, just ordinary goatskin tents. Then in the middle of them all, there's another tent, and above that other tent is a marvelous cloud of glory. You see, that's a different tent. That's different. That's not like these other tents. These are the tents of ordinary. Now the Lord Jesus was here in true humanity. Just as a man amongst men, as we say, but there was a glory with him. Just as that Shekinah cloud distinguished the tabernacle from every other one of those thousands of tents, there was a glory with Christ. Not an external glory, not a, not a halo around his head or anything, but there was a glory with him that distinguished him from every other human being that ever lived. Mm-hmm. What was the glory? He was full of grace and truth. And truth. As the God man, but that's not strictly correct. Ah, no. Two distinct natures in one blessed person. Ah, that, that's, a good, that's important just to grasp that. Someone was asking me recently, they said in the Bible reading, somebody was saying it wasn't correct to say the Lord Jesus had two natures. I think that anything else than that is incorrect. He was full deity, not diminished deity. And he was perfect humanity. Mm-hmm. Two natures, by hypostatic union, joined together in one person, never to be separated again. There's a step that was taken voluntarily, as we heard, by the everlasting word that will never be retracted. Having stepped into humanity that we might be saved, he will carry that humanity forever. Mm. And there's a glory with him, the glory of his grace, as we are reading here, full of grace and truth. David, just on the, the grace and truth, in verse 4 we had life and light. I'm just wondering, is life manifested grace and light manifested truth? I, I, I see what you're saying, Paul. I would put it like this. 
There are three statements made about God. God is spirit. The word became flesh. God is love. Love in action is great. God is light. Light in action is true. So God is spirit became flesh. God is light full of truth. God is love full of grace. So all that God was was brought out in the public display in the incarnate Savior. This is the full revelation of God that we're dealing with here. This expression, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, uh-huh. is this more of an abstract expression or is this actually referring to the beloved Son of God the Father? I, 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 I know what you mean. I, I think maybe both of them, really. It's, first, it's the glory of... There was a glory in Him that could only be the glory that was possessed by a special son. The glory as of an only begotten of the Father. And his glory, his radiant glory, displayed a, revela- a, a relationship that was uniquely his. Now, we're moving back. To, sorry, Keith, come on ahead. Is it uh, parallel with her brother's ministry last night? that we are now in the family of God and therefore as the children of God we are to reflect the Father. Uh, so I, both are in it. I th- I, exactly. I think that all comes through in the Gospel in a larger thought. Keith. Good. Now verse 15, we're back now to John the Baptist. So it seems to be going back. And then we're going back to Moses. Now just to, to summarize, the verse 15 is the last of the prophets. Verse 17 is the great Moses. So here's one, you take the law and you take the prophet. And you've got one who has brought into this world something greater than the prophets. That's verse 15. He's greater than the law. That's verse 17. And this marvelous supply of grace which he has brought, we have received it. Of his fullness. Out of his fullness. We haven't got his fullness. But out of it, all we have received grace for Grace. So this one who transcends prophets and transcends law. I hope you get that. Verse 15, prophets. Verse 17, law. Now we have the new dispensation. Not shadows, it's the substance. We're not dealing with the types. We have got the reality. And now we have it all in Christ. His fullness. In him, the shadows of the law are all fulfilled and now withdraw. That's what we've been told in verses 16 and 17. John says in verse 15, He comes after me in history. He's preferred before me in dignity, for he was before me in eternity. So he's greater than the servant. Verse 15. He's greater than the shadows. Verse 17. And he has a full supply. Verse 16. And because we have received him, we have been brought into this rich supply of unlimited grace. Now, I've summarized those verses, if you can help us, brethren, and then we have just the verse 18 to The after me, David, at the end of verse, toward the end of verse 15, I take it that referred to the biological, the birth of the Lord Jesus, the incarnation. All right. It was after John. Yes. But, uh, as you say, he was preferred before John. That is indignity, etc. John says I'm not worthy to. Exactly. And then, of course, 
for he was before me. It's interesting, he came after me, but he was before me. <laughs> that, that doesn't make sense to a lot of people. But it's very precious to us, exactly. his eternal existence. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So John is grasping that, mm-hmm. just the eternity of, of Christ in verse number 15. Concerning this fullness in verse 16, uh, just to link it with the end of verse 14, grace and truth, would that be the equivalent of the Old Testament expression so often used relative to God, mercy and truth? That the very foundation of God's throne is mercy and truth. And that fullness now has been completely revealed in an incarnate Christ here for men to see. The trouble is, there's a couple of things in the wall there, and we are battling. We're having to rush through with almost an unholy pace some of these most precious things. What we are just talking about are the biggest events in history. Mm -hmm. Now, there are two passages that shadow these 18 verses. We've talked about both, one of them, Genesis 1. But the other passage our brothers alluded to is Exodus 34. Moses said to God, show me thy glory. Mm-hmm. Oh no, Moses. He says, no, he says, he can't. He says, I'll put you in here. Mm-hmm. And he saw his back parts, and as God went past, the Lord proclaimed his glory, proclaimed his name, full of mercy and truth. That's my name, full of mercy and truth. Now those are the very things that have now been fully revealed in Christ. Not in the cleft of a rock, not in the back parts, but now on public display, walking the streets of Palestine, if we dare use that expression. Walking the streets of the land was a saviour who was God's glory, mercy and truth seen in full embodiment and in full expression. And that has brought us a fullness. Grace upon grace. The only reason we could get into the family of God, dear Christians, I don't know about you, but I would know if I'm going to get into God's family, there'll have to be a lot of grace on the go. For a sinner like me to get in and become a child of God, it will need a tremendous amount of grace. And thank God there's plenty. Because he's full of grace and truth. And tell me, what does this mean, this expression? And I'll let you go home with a special, a special gift if you can explain to me Verse 16, out of his fullness have all we, whether you're ten years saved or ten minutes saved, all we received on grace for grace. What does that mean? Grace for grace. If you tell everybody that, we'll be able to go home happy. I was going to ask you that, David, but just as a suggestion, is, is the idea here of of grace being piled on top of grace. We've talked of the fullness of Christ. And here we have a, an overflowing, uh, an overlapping, a comprehensive provision of grace. Uh, it may be, Mark. It may be. It may be, but I don't think it is. It isn't, yet it isn't. Uh, grace upon grace. We often think about that. Our brothers, like standing on the, on the shore... And you get a wave come in. That wave hasn't broken. There's another one rising. And then you look out. And then there's another one. More grace. Just and an incessant waves of grace forever and ever. Thank God that's true. We have it all in Christ. Grace upon grace. Grace is flowing like a river. Millions there still as flows as fresh as ever. Now this is more complicated. So the first one's easier. So just hold on to it if you have it. What I think has been said is this. There was grace in the Old Testament. But in Christ, we have the grace in Him that matches. 
what was in the Old Testament. You say, what was the grace of the Old Testament? Well, they were hungry one day in the wilderness, and God sent down a great big rain of manna. That was very gracious. He didn't send us manna. He sent us the true bread. We have the grace that matches. Not the typical grace. Not bread. We have the real grace. There was one day in the wilderness the people were dying. God said to Moses, put up a serpent. That was grace. Very kind of God. And when the people looked, they stopped dying. That was grace. He says, I want to tell you, we have the real grace. For that serpent, we don't look to a serpent. We have got the Savior. We have grace matching to the grace. He said to Moses, you make an ark. I should have worried. Put the ark in there. Put the law in there. But he says, if I leave the naked law, all these people will perish. Make a box of gold and shit them wood. We heard about it last night. That was very gracious of God to make a chest to hold hide the two tables of the law. That was very kind of him. So the people, we don't have the two tables of the law hidden in a box. What that box pointed forward to, we have it in its reality. We have a Christ who is shit them wood overlaid with gold. Deity. So the grace of the Old Testament is fully matched all those types and shadows pointed forward to the substance, the greater substance that was coming. I hear an ascent here. That, yeah, uh, so that's the fullness that we have now in Christ. Now the last verse, dear brother, is very, very brother, important. Brother verse. David, does, does verse 17, at the end of verse 17, take us to the climax of this introduction? What started as the word? is now given expression in the person. The only time that John himself actually refers to Jesus Christ. Jesus, so it's made very close and very personal. Jesus Christ. Now, in verse number 18, we have the Word and the Father. There's a great disadvantage. No man has seen God. Well, you say, sure, that's it. If you can't see God, you'll never get to know. Oh, he says, now listen, there might be a disadvantage, but there's been a big disclosure. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father. He has mentioned some things. No, he has declared him. So he said, the invisible God has been fully seen. There's a person who has an essential relationship. He's the only begotten Son. He has an enjoyed residence. He's in the Father's bosom. Couldn't be closer. He has given an exact revelation. He hath declared him. We sang earlier, brightness of uncreated light, the heart of God revealed. In becoming flesh, did he leave the bosom of the Father? I know, I don't, I, know, I, I, I don't think he did, but I'm, I don't think so, no. Robin. This is just a, a, is this a, not an eternal relationship? The only begotten Son, which is. Ah, yes, so exactly. that we're back up now in verse 18, exactly where we were in verse 1. Mm-hmm. And in between these verses have dipped down until they touched John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Touched us. And we have been caught up into the fellowship of deity. I tell you dear Christians, we are glad that God ever became incarnate mm-hmm. in the person of his son. Mm-hmm. Now thanks brethren for all your help. Uh, just before Brother Mark or some of the brethren give out the closing hymn, we'll very briefly speak to the Lord in prayer and give thanks for the food. <coughs> Our Father, we bow before Thee in the precious name of the Lord Jesus. We thank Thee for these precious, profound, very lofty verses that we have considered. We 
we feel that we've only touched upon some of these surface matters and yet they touch our spirits we thank thee for coming near uh, in the person of thy son thou hast not remained a distant and a disinterested and detached deity but thou hast come close not only to Bethlehem and into human experience but to Calvary suffering even into death we thank thee that thou hast stooped even to the uttermost in the Saviour thou hast met our deepest need a full atonement has been made a complete revelation has been established and in the good of it we have been welcomed as sons and daughters of the Lord God Almighty we marvel at the vast extent the wide ranging and far reaching eternal implications of what we have been reading forgive us for handling it with such unholy haste but we pray that these matters will be deeply embedded in our souls and that they will be nurtured in our thinking and will generate in our spirits and cause everlasting adoration to arise heavenward. We thank thee again for sending thy Son to be the Saviour of the world. We're glad for these times that we can spend together. Remember the Bible reading to come, the ministry tonight. We pray for refreshment now in the interval. We thank thee for food that has been prepared. We acknowledge that thou art a beneficent creator and thou dost meet our every physical need as well as spiritual and eternal. With hearts glad and grateful, we give to thee our evening thanks and ask thy blessing in our converse together in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Now we're just going to sing a hymn, number 338, number 338, what think you of Christ is the test, to try both your state and your scheme, you cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. Verse 4 says, so guilty, so helpless am I, I durst not confide in his blood nor on his protection rely, unless I were sure he is God. 338, just keeping our seats. And remember that the next uh, session is at four o'clock. Number three, three, eight, keeping our seats. Thank you, Christ is the best.